lots of pictures. Let me take you back to your school days. Oh, <laughs> oh, some, of, some people, it's obviously not a very happy memory. Uh, when we played team sports in school, team captains would be appointed and then they would select their teams from the assembled company. If your name was called, you felt honoured and wanted, and that was a good feeling. And then you wanted to play your best to please your captain. Now, Margaret mentioned this morning that she often was near the end of being called, as indeed so was I. Um, I decided I wasn't going to go there, but having mentioned it, <laughs> um, it isn't like that when God calls us, I'd like to say. Perhaps you own a cat or a dog, and sometimes you have to call them, and you use their name. That makes it personal. You don't want all the cats and dogs in the neighbourhood. You just want the one that belongs to you. You have a relationship to that animal. And the animal knows he belongs where he's called. In the opening verses of our passage in 1 Corinthians, that word comes three times in different forms. Paul says he was called to be an apostle of Christ by the will of God. And then he tells the church in Corinth that they were called, says they called on the name of the Lord Jesus, but they've been called to be holy. So they call and they're called. And then in verse 9, God has called you into fellowship with his son. That's a wonderful thing. So my thought this morning is all about calling. And the first point is that God has called us. We've been called by God. If we're following him at all, it's because he called us. Paul was called to be an apostle. and He was very aware that God had chosen him for that very special task to tell others about Christ and bring them to him. But he writes to the church at large, the church in Corinth, which is a city with a bit of an unsavoury reputation, and he says that these Christians are sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be his holy people. Sanctified just means to be made holy or to be set apart for a special purpose. So sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be his holy people seem to mean much the same thing, but Paul seems to want to say it twice to emphasise it. They've been called out of a godless society, called to be God's own people, called to join God's team, to belong in his family and to have a relationship with him. And Paul says that this is a worldwide community. We don't just belong to the Good Shepherd Church, we belong to something much bigger, much bigger than the Anglican Church or the Worldwide Anglican Communion. We have brothers and sisters all across the world, from A to Z, the Amazon to Zimbabwe, and we've been called together. We're called to be different, to be holy. So if we're Christians, we can't just follow the crowd around us. We can't blend in with society and then claim to follow Jesus as well. The church is bound to be at odds with the society around it, in some areas at least. We're called by God to be his holy people. And we ought to have different attitudes, standards and values. For example, we should be different in the area of our sexual behaviour. We should uphold God's design of one man and one woman for life, 
And the alternative in the scriptures is abstinence, which the Bible says is healthy. We must be different in how we do business, with transparency and honesty and generosity. We must be different in how we relate to each other. We should treat each other with respect and self-sacrificing love. So in every area of life, we must do everything for God's glory and to please him. Verse 9 of our passage says that we're called into fellowship with his Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. We're meant to enjoy his companionship, his friendship. We're meant to share the life he lived and perhaps the opposition he endured. Now none of this is actually about my decision and my personal choice, because I didn't call myself. God called me and God called you. God takes the initiative in this, as though he were the team captain. In John 6, 44, we read these words of Jesus. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. It's not about me just coming to church because I've done it all my life and going away no different. It's about me relating to Jesus Christ, God's Son, every day and being counted among his holy people. Well, maybe that sounds a bit demanding and a bit beyond us. Well, here's the very good news, my second point. God equips us to obey his calling. As he says in verse 4, I always thank my God for you because of his grace given to you in Christ Jesus. For in him... You have been enriched in every way with all kinds of speech and all kinds of knowledge. And there's that marvellous word, grace. Paul links it with being enriched in every way. This is the answer to our neediness and our failures and our weakness. Grace is not just a word, it's a glorious reality and it comes from God. Well now, explaining grace is quite a difficult task, although we can do it in some simple ways. But I'm going to offer you some quotes from other people just to see how other people have seen it. Here we go. This is the first one. D.L. Moody was an American evangelist about 150 years ago who brought many, many people to faith in Christ. Grace means undeserved kindness. It is the gift of God to man the moment he sees that he is unworthy of God's favour. Here's another one from a living author, Philip Yancey. Grace does not depend on what we've done for God, but rather what God has done for us. Ask people what they must do to get to heaven, and most people will reply, be good. But Jesus' stories and his teachings contradict that answer. All we need to do is cry, help! Ultimately, grace cannot be earned. Like all gifts, it can only be received, requiring that I simply open my hands and trust. Here's Moody again. Grace isn't a little prayer that you chant before a meal. It's a way to live. The law tells me how crooked I am. Grace comes along and straightens me out. I do like that one. <laughs> and lastly, grace is the voice that calls us to change, 
and then gives us the power to pull it off. It's good news, isn't it? Now, Paul was not writing to a model church here. Actually, the church in Corinth was full of problems. It was a messy church. They weren't a very promising bunch. There weren't many rich, educated or privileged people among them. They were quite new Christians, mostly from a non-Jewish background, or Gentiles, as we say, which means they wouldn't have had much knowledge of the scriptures. They wouldn't know much about God yet. And they brought some of the attitudes of their society into the church with them. There were petty divisions about which leader was most important. There was a kind of spiritual one-upmanship going on where they were scoring points off each other. There was boasting, there was a power struggle. There was even incest that hadn't been dealt with. There were lawsuits between church members. There was sexual laxity. Some were attending parties that were associated with idol worship, while others, so keen to avoid all that, they refused to eat meat at all, because meat that went on sale in the market had usually been offered to idols. There was confusion about what it meant to be free as a Christian. There was confusion about the Lord's Supper and about spiritual gifts. And there was unseemly disorder when they met together each Sunday morning. Can you imagine if you came to church and there was a, fist, a bit of fisticuffs? Would liven us up, wouldn't it? Been there since Margaret. <laughs> Dear me. <laughs> Not my fault. <laughs> well, Paul knows all about what's going on. He's obviously got someone who's keeping him in the loop. He starts with this confident statement. You have received God's grace and been enriched in every way. God has already provided this weak, failing church with all the resources they need. And he's provided us with all those resources too. As he says, you do not lack any spiritual gift as you eagerly wait for our Lord Jesus Christ to be revealed. Now a word about spiritual gifts. They've been a hot potato in the church, especially over the last hundred years or so. And churches have often split over the issue. I note here that the church, even in immoral Corinth, did not lack any spiritual gift. People tend to line up with one of two positions. Either that we should say, no, we don't want those gifts, or they're not available anymore, and we don't go looking for them. Or they say, yeah, we should seek them out because we can't be a proper church without them. Now, I'm not going to pontificate on this too much, but Paul says that just as God has called us, he has given spiritual gifts to the church, even to a failing church like Corinth. I believe he has done that and still does it, whether we're aware of it or not, and whether we use the right language or not. I'm not convinced that we need to go seeking them personally, as though we have a right to discover our own gift, any more than we should demand a present at Christmas. It puts too much focus on me as though the gifts are a perk for my own use. The gifts are given by a loving Father, and as he works in us, the gifts develop and grow 
as he sees fit, whether we use the right terminology or not. We're here for building up the church, not for personal power and prestige. The next verse, verse 8, says, He will also keep you firm to the end, so that you will be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, who has called you into fellowship with his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Now, despite all that Paul knows about this church in Corinth, he's still confident that they will come out right in the end, <coughs> because God has called them and God is at work in them. And he will surely complete what he has started. He has provided all that is necessary. Now let's look very briefly at the passage in John's Gospel. John chapter 1. John the Baptist had a special calling, rather as did Paul. John was set aside from conception to prepare the way for the Messiah. And he pointed people to Jesus. He said, look, there's the Lamb of God. And people followed Jesus as a result. <coughs> Excuse me. Now, for those people who followed Jesus, the call actually was also an invitation. Come and see, said Jesus. And it's that call to fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ. And we can only discover it by personal experience. Now, last autumn, when Ken went to Brazil to visit Logos Hope, he had the opportunity to go paragliding. I'm quite jealous. <laughs> However, he was guided in this paragliding flight by an experienced paraglider who was harnessed together with him to the same parachute. They did some safety checks and gave instructions and did some preparation. And then, as you will see in a minute, I hope, Ken had to run off a cliff edge to take flight with his instructor. His face was very interesting. <laughs> But that was the only way to enjoy the ride. Now I've watched it on video several times and I know it's not the same thing because I don't get that feeling of being airborne. I just feel slightly sick if I watch him swaying around. <laughs> but Jesus says, come and see, come and give it a try. Now for Andrew, meeting Jesus was so convincing. He went off at once to find his own brother Simon and brought him to Jesus as well. So let me ask you, have you taken the plunge? And if not, what's holding you back? Are you airborne in fellowship with Jesus? Remember, God has provided all you need for the journey and he 